FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Political Rewind. It's Tuesday, March 9th. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, glad to have all of you with us uh, today. Uh, last night was a very late night, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Georgia legislature. It was crossover day, as we've discussed on the show yesterday and a little bit last week. And formally, as you all know by now, it's the final day in which a bill uh, is, uh, it can be passed in one house and then uh, still be alive for the remainder of the session, although there are all sorts of technical ways to uh, get around that. Uh, the main legislation that uh, people were focusing on last night were the Republican-sponsored bills aimed at changing how Georgians vote. Uh, as you all know, uh, Republican supporters of the measure have said that their constituents do not trust voting outcomes in the state, and they think that these measures will protect voter integrity, make people feel, people feel confident in the uh, outcome of elections. And, of course, opponents say that they are efforts at voter suppression. Uh, the biggest uh, bill in that regard was the omnibus bill in the Senate, which, among other things, would end no-excuse absentee uh, balloting and would put new uh, measures in place to assure uh, ID voter ID for absentee balloting. That big bill passed by just one vote in the state Senate, completely along party lines. Democrats all opposed it. The Republicans in the bill were the ones who put it across the line. So we're going to talk about that and other measures that did and didn't make it to the finish line. <clears throat> Excuse me again with our panel today. Uh, starting with my partner on the Tuesday show, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, how are you today? Hey, Bill. Trying to catch up on all the drama from the, the legislature last night. You, they, uh, they accomplished so much. It, it's taken me a while to kind of touch base and make sure I've gotten everything. So lots yeah, of yeah, Yeah, tons of stuff to discuss. Thanks for being here. Heath Garrett is back with us. He, of course, a Republican uh, political <clears throat> consultant and a uh, longtime uh, panelist on Political Rewind. Hi, Heath. How are you? Bill, I'm great. It's great to be here with you today after crossover. Yeah. Uh, you Did you have any business down there in terms of crossover? Do you have clients who are uh, worried about some of the legislation down there right now? I haven't, I haven't asked you that this session. Uh, nothing on the legislative side, uh, but obviously a lot of uh, political candidates watching what happens, particularly with this election legislation and how that'll affect uh, next year. Yeah, we'll look forward to talking to you about some of that as we move forward. Uh, Pete Wynn, Democratic representative from Atlanta, who was one of the people who was up late last night, is here. B, thank you for doing the show despite your late night in the state house last night. <laughs> Good morning, Bill. It's good to be on here. I'm actually looking forward to hearing some of the uh, the drama because I have no idea what goes on the Senate side sometimes. And then you want to pick his brain on what the heck Republicans are thinking right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we're also joined by the mayor of Augusta, Georgia, a former member of the Georgia legislature, Mayor Hardy Davis. Uh, mayor Davis, thank you for being 
with us today. I asked you before the show went on the air if you were glad you are now a mayor and not, don't have to stay up all night on days like yesterday. And uh, in fact, you said no. You wished in some ways you were able to be down there to fight for the measures you support and those you oppose. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, I'm excited to join you guys again. Uh, really happy to be on the program with Tamar Keith, uh, who I'm just meeting, and of course, uh, my friend, Representative Wynn. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. You know, there's so much going on in the legislature right now, uh, whether it's preemption of local government, uh, whether it's uh, attacking private sector businesses, trying to tell them who can come into hospitals and nursing homes, or for that matter, uh, these issues around ballot access, voter registration. There's a lot going on. Um um, and uh, obviously, we've spent an awful lot of time on the show talking about the, uh, the changes that Republicans have been uh, uh, supporting in terms of primarily absentee voting, but also early voting as well. And Tamar, that omnibus measure that the Senate, in which the Senate kind of uh, put together all of the uh, bills that various Republicans had introduced, did pass pretty narrowly last night, and, and the measure that's gotten an awful lot of attention is the end-to-no-excuse absentee uh, balloting. That now moves to the House, where, uh, where Speaker Ralston has said in the past he opposes uh, the end-of-no-excuse balloting. We should also say, as I throw it to you, that the lieutenant governor, who typically presides over Senate sessions, has been opposed to an end-to-no-excuse balloting, and he actually left the chamber uh, during debate on the measure, uh, presumably because he did not want to be associated with a bill that he does not support. Tamar? Yeah, so this bill would restrict absentee voting to people who are at least 65, have a disability, or uh, can prove that they're out of town. And, you know, Democrats have, have been sending around analyses from groups like the Brennan Center, uh, a left-leaning think tank that, that showed that it would harm black voters um, the most. Um, you mentioned how Speaker Ralston has been critical of some of these proposals, but at the same time, I think there's such pressure from the Republican base right now, given um, the rhetoric that we saw from former President Trump, especially after the November elections. I think it's going to be very hard at the end of the day for a lot of these Republicans, especially Governor Kemp, who's facing the, a potential primary challenger backed by former President Trump, to say no to a lot of these. If, if he's already being called a rhino, a Republican in name only, there's so much pressure from the base right now. And it might ultimately be hard to say no to a lot of these things, even if, if you uh, ultimately voted for, um, you know, to, to put in this no excuse, uh, or sorry, uh, the, the no excuse absentee voting back in 2005, which Republicans did put into place 15 years ago. Um, so Heath, a uh, 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 big win sort of set you up. Um, help us understand, <laughs> there, there are a couple of, of these election bills which uh, polling, AJC polling particularly, has shown that uh, the people of Georgia are, are okay with. Um, adding requirements for voter ID, for instance, for absentee voting, it, it, it's supported by a majority of people. But the, some of these measures, like an end to no-excuse absentee balloting, uh, take it to a whole new uh, level. So if you don't mind, I'll post you the question, be asked, what are the Republicans in the Senate who passed this last night thinking? Well, you know, Bill, we've always said you can't take the politics out of politics. And uh, there's no question 
since 2018, starting with Stacey Abrams and the suppression campaign um, that I think, uh, obviously I've said on here, I think has some uh, legal and factual uh, challenges. And then what the president uh, Trump did in Georgia has shaken the confidence of voters of both uh, of both bases here in the state of Georgia, Democrat and Republican. And so I think these senators are responding to the political pressure of their party and the primary. I think a lot of it's based not in law and in fact. And so uh, what our my Senate friends have done is probably overreacted a little bit to the immediate reaction of what just happened over the last six weeks. Uh, you're right. What started out as probably very good and thoughtful legislation about voter ID and absentee balloting and shoring up some of the technical aspects of this has now turned into uh, based on fear and based on misinformation that was put out over an eight, nine, 10 week period of time by mostly forces outside of the state of Georgia, these legislators are, are responding to that. I'm hopeful as, as are most Republicans who've thought this through and been involved in these uh, legal and factual debates that uh, cooler heads will prevail in the House. I think the House bill is scaled down. I think that uh, there are significant, we, you know, definitely a lot of Republicans feel like there's some significant legal issues around the end and no excuse balloting. Um, you know, we think that trying to end Sunday voting was a little gratuitous on the political side there. And so uh, remember, it's a multi-step process here. It comes from the Senate. The House has their version. There's going to be a conference committee. I'm hearing that it's going to get scaled down. Uh, and then hopefully uh, we'll have a, a better piece of legislation once the emotions start to uh, to run down. But Republicans are running, walking a real fine line politically here. Uh, if we go forward with everything that's in this package, I do think it'll be damaged. It's, it's, it's probably bad policy in a couple of areas, and it'll be bad politics uh, come uh, the election in the future. B? Well, you know, I have to respond by saying that in 2018, the basis for voter suppression was backed up by policies that we saw impact the people's ability to vote and to have their vote counted. So an example of that was the litigation in Gwinnett County, where there was just a high number of um, signature rejection for voters of color, uh, disproportionately black and brown voters. And that resulted in our ability to create a ballot curing process. So I reject the notion that the 2018 election was similar to 2020, because in 2020, we saw no evidence. As we are looking at these court cases, the cases that have made it to the state board, of elections and refer to the AG, there's just simply no evidence to justify any of these things that are being passed by Republicans. And I think that Heath is right, that this is going to probably have an adverse re uh, effect on Republican voters, because as we know, in 2005, they were the ones who passed no excuse absentee ballot voting. They have used it more than Democrats every single year up until 2020. And I think, you know, <laughs> what the public probably angry about is the fact that people started using no excuse because we are still in a pandemic and this bill does not actually count a pandemic as an excuse to vote by mail. And so I do think that some of these measures will backfire both through litigation and both through the public rejecting some of these things. And, and Republicans have had plenty of opportunities to push back on these lies and misinformation. And even this legislative session during these hearings on House Bill 531, we had a guy come in who testified as a, wit of, as a person who was part of some bipartisan commission. And he was actually in the Capitol on the day that we were voting 
for our electorate, trying to vote for alternative electors in the state of Georgia, and not one Republican called him out or pushed back on him or asked him exactly who he was and why he felt the way he was or whether or not he even accepted the results of the presidential election. Mayor Davis, why don't you weigh in on this for us, please? Yeah, Bill, thanks. I I agree with uh, all that I've heard at this point. I think what's really lost, and it's a point that – that Representative Wynn made just a moment ago, and that in the midst of a global pandemic, the efforts of boards of elections across this entire state, uh, they kept citizens safe. They allowed people to uh, exercise their right to vote uh, as Americans during the highest turnout elections, not only in our nation's history, but in our state's history. You then had a Republican Secretary of State who clearly people are forgotten. In June of last year, sent out 6 million absentee ballot requests uh, because he himself wanted to keep people safe and allow good Georgians an opportunity to exercise their right to vote. And so when you look at these egregious attacks that largely are the results of disinformation, um, you know, in the rhetoric from uh, former President Trump and, and those that have aligned themselves with him, I think it's really a false narrative uh, to, to disenfranchise Georgians uh, who have fought, who have led, uh, who've led the charge. When you go back to the civil rights movement, when you look at great Georgians, um, the conscience of Congress, John Lewis, uh, and others who have paved the way for us, and now to come back in the Georgia General Assembly, where on one hand, you've got a group saying, we need to raise a statue uh, for the late congressman in Washington. And then, oh, by the way, we're going to disenfranchise the same voters that he has fought so hard for. Uh, I find that very uh, disappointing when you look at these measures. Uh, I agree that, you know, you've got these two omnibus bills, there'll be a conference committee, and they'll resolve it. But I do see the political winds coming back to haunt Republicans who, at the end of the day, they led the charge back in 2005. They've uh, led the charge, quite frankly, since 2003 when uh, they took over the legislature. And so when we find ourselves at this place, uh, it's a sad day in Georgia. I think that uh, you look at part of the language that's in uh, the bill also tamps down on the authorities and the responsibilities that the Secretary of State has. Effectively, you're taking a Secretary of State who's elected by uh, all Georgians across the entire state and saying, oh, by the way, you're not going to get to function in that role. Uh, these are measures that I think we need to look closely at, and uh, cooler heads hopefully will prevail. Uh, but I think, as he said it, you know, this is politics. Bill, there's no there's no question, uh, and I uh, you know I like when I can't agree with my Democratic friends. You know, we as Republicans actually have a great story to tell about the last election. One of the reasons why it was the highest turnout, the highest voter registration, and I on this show all the time give Stacey Abrams credit for taking advantage of Republican legislation that made it easier to register to vote in Georgia than almost anywhere else in the country. It's easier to vote. We have three weeks. We have so many opportunities, and that's a great story for Republicans to tell, and I do think that we ought to do that. I think one of the things that, that, that B mentioned, which is also true, is that Republicans have taken advantage of absentee voting in every other election, uh, more so than our Democratic friends, except for this one election. That, to me, is a statistical anomaly, and I think that we, our, our Republican friends probably need to stop and pause and think, are we not about to do damage to our own ability here? I think we ought to be working on getting more of our folks to vote by absentee 
uh, mail with, with secure voter ID, of course. But uh, I do think there's some areas where we as Republicans ought to be taking advantage of this narrative. And I do want to say a lot of our Republicans have stood up, starting with the governor, the lieutenant governor, our attorney general, our secretary of state, under tremendous national pressure from people in their own party over the last three months. And they are profiles and courage of sticking with the law and the facts. And I still am optimistic that we're going to work through this uh, legislative process and come out with a better product. So, you know, Tamara, we should that, point I out, I mean, go ahead, uh, Mayor. You know, the challenge to that is that silence is complicity. Um, you know, I remember the days of uh, taking a walk uh, when you got uh, legislation that uh, might be a little uncomfortable and uh, folks encouraging, you know, if this is painful, you know, what are you going to do? But, you know, the lieutenant governor needs to speak up on this matter. The speaker's already done it. And I'm hoping that he certainly holds the line. And I think it'd be prudent for the governor uh, who, when you look at it, uh, Representative Lynn, along with 179 of her colleagues in the House and 56 of my former colleagues in the Senate, they've enjoyed the benefit of being where they are uh, because we had safe and secure elections. And we cannot allow Georgians, whether they be Republican or Democrat, to forget that. They are there in the first session of this legislative session because we had safe and secure elections and now to come back and, you know, uh, effectively dismantle what happened in 2020 um, is, again, just egregious. Tomorrow? I want to pick up on something Heath mentioned and, and kind of the, the good news story about having so many people being able to register to vote and participate in elections. Um, as I was saying last week on the show, I think so much of, you know, perception is reality. And, and that's not the story that Donald Trump was telling after the election in, in November. It's not about access um, in his narrative. It's all about, you know, election integrity and voter fraud and all of those ideas. So I think if you're a Republican, um, or at least in a district, you know, uh, maybe not a suburban district, a more rural district where Donald Trump is overwhelmingly popular. I don't think you can tell that story right now, Heath, that, you know, about voter access. It's all about voter fraud, even if the, the audits don't show that. It's, it's so much Donald Trump's party right now. And if you want to appeal to those voters, you really do have to put your messaging in lockstep with, with Trump's. And I think that's why you're seeing so many of these legislators um, stepping in in the way that they are. Um, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about that in a minute, Heath, but let me add another element to this and be, uh, give you a chance on this. Uh, we've talked about the Brennan Center study on uh, voting measures across country, uh, many of which are Republican measures to uh, uh, reduce the ability of people to get to the, you know, to have absentee ballots, to have early voting and that sort of thing. Um, I mentioned a couple of the uh, items that the Brennan Center published over the weekend in their study specifically of the Georgia election bills. And uh, be one of the, the, the study concluded that the Georgia Republican bills are aimed at uh, uh, slowing down the ability of uh, African Americans uh, to vote, uh, blocking voting. Here's just one. Uh, piece of uh, data that they included in their study. Uh, they show that just about 30 percent, 29.7 percent of, uh, of, of early mail-in votes, uh, rather absentee votes, were, uh, 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 came from black voters, as opposed to 24.2 percent 
of white voters. Um, now, that doesn't seem like um, a huge difference. It, it is some five points or so. But in a state as evenly divided as Georgia, the margins for victory are getting slimmer and slimmer. And so it doesn't take much to uh, dilute the vote, in this case, of black voters who have chosen absentee balloting as their preferred method for, for uh, casting their ballots be. Well, I think that when we talk about voting in Georgia and in our country, we have to take into account the history of voting. And we know that in this country, voting has been restrictive. It has began as something that has been restrictive only to white male landowners and everybody else had to fight, had to give up their lives and earn the right to vote. And so fundamentally, a lot of this is at the heart of that. There's one party who believes in access for as many people as who are eligible to vote. Those are the Democrats. We want to see everybody be able to vote no matter what, if you are eligible to vote. On the Republican side, they want to see voter restriction. And so the messaging of unprecedented turnout and the access in Georgia doesn't bode well with Republicans because fundamentally, they just don't want people to vote. And all of these measures in 531 when put together as an omnibus package, it slowly chips away at black and brown voters. One thing that's probably not being talked about as much is the provision that takes away uh, provisional voting, right? And so um, in some of the statistics that were cited in the well by the Republican author, they were actually not true. Every single year in Georgia elections, including 2020, 2019, or 2018, we've had tens of thousands of people who had to vote provisionally out of their mm -hmm. precinct. And that tends to happen more in metro counties where there are multiple precincts, where it's confusing, where there's consolidation, um, where there's an early voting location that's also open on election day. For example, I was a poll watcher in Fulton County um, I, I, in November, and 600 people voted in person that day, and half of those were out of precinct voters because it was an early voting location that also happened to be open on election day. Voters thought because that location was open for three weeks that they would be able to vote there on election day. They were in the right county, wrong precinct. Under current law, they were able to vote provisionally. Their ballots were automatically cured and counted at the end of the night. Under this new legislation, we would eliminate that altogether. And we have evidence to show that people who vote provisionally, um, the higher rate and proportion are black and brown voters. And so it's these measures that chip away in, in small ways so that they come up with, um, you know, a size of people that can be suppressed or people who can't, whose votes will be invalidated enough to swing an election. And we're talking about the big sexy pieces that are very devastating, ending no excuse absentee ballot, but there are all these smaller things along the way that continue to chip away, and those add up and will make a difference. Uh, Heath, uh, the, the measure that, that B is talking about, which essentially right. says if you vote in the wrong precinct, your vote is thrown out, period. You, even if it's you're voting for an elected official who's a statewide official, and that measure is being repeated by any number of legislatures around the country. It's in, it, Republicans have uh, taken that up. But Heath, a couple quick things, and then I'll let you get, right. get you back in. Number one, I do believe that the lieutenant governor has made it clear he does not support an end to no excuse absentee balloting. I think he has spoken out on that. I think the fact that he rather dramatically excused himself from the Senate chamber yet last night when this was being debated made it pretty clear that he is not 
a supporter of that proposal. I just want to, I think, give a, a fair clarification on that. But, but Heath, um, here's the question I think that a lot of people are asking in, in today. Um, it's the notion of ending uh, no-excuse balloting may not be popular across the board by in, in Republican leadership circles. But these bills have a way of picking up steam because of the constituency out there that overcomes what even a Speaker of the House, in this case David Ralston, wants to do. That's really how we got the most, one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country a few years ago. People said over and over again, no, no, this will never pass. But the will of the people prevailed. Are you worried that that can happen uh, on these bills and that it's going to be harmful to some of your own candidates uh, in uh, the 2022 cycle? Well, look, anything's hypothetically possible, Bill, and you know, it is politics, uh, and both sides uh, kind of follow their bases in a lot of this stuff. I'm more optimistic than maybe the way you posed the question that the legislative process is working. We've got the checks and balances. We've got the two houses. We've got the governor. We've got leadership like uh, Governor Lieutenant Governor uh, Duncan and others. And I, let, me, let me go back and say, uh, you know, V did a good job of casting very wide as persons that all Republicans are somehow bad and involved in 1960s-like suppression. Let's be clear. That's not the case. The laws that allowed us to vote the way we did in 2020 were all passed by Republicans. Uh, did the Republicans in Georgia have been very progressive using y'all's terms? Uh, on this in the state of Georgia over the last 20 years. And so you can't just cast these broad as, as, uh, aspersions. There is debate within the Republican Party over what the right thing to do here is. And I, I'm I'm uh, very uh, hopeful that the legislative process will work and that we'll end up with a better piece of legislation. But you're right. Po with the politics of politics is going to prevail. And we as Republicans will suffer some in 2022 and maybe more in 2024 uh, because we're overreacting to the heated emotion of the last eight to 12 weeks and not to the facts around this uh, piece of legislation. And I'm hoping that, you know, I always say that good policy makes good politics. And if good policy will prevail here, I think we're going to get some uh, voter integrity uh, legislation passed, um, but we'll hopefully we'll strip out some of the stuff that's either unconstitutional or uh, at least uh, politically damaging to this. Because, look, it's allowing my Democratic friends to define the Republican Party as like 1960s Democrats were when they were trying to suppress the vote in the South. We're not there. We're arguing over how many hours, hundreds of hours, that somebody has a, an opportunity to vote in the state of Georgia. And let me just say it clear. The 99 percent of all Republicans are out there all the time wanting everybody to vote who has the opportunity. But we're debating on how and when you do that. And, uh, you know, I can't speak. Both parties have one percent who are just off the chain. So. All right. Uh, Heath Garrett, we're going to give you the last word uh, in this segment because I've got to get to a break. I think that uh, Democrats would probably take issue with uh, what you're saying about 99% of Republicans, because that would include the Republicans of the legislature who supporting are supporting these restrictive measures, uh, really want to keep the vote as expansive as possible. But that's part of the debate that we're having on Political Rewind as these measures are being considered. Uh, let's take a break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Joining us on Political Rewind today, Tamara Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Heath Garrett, Republican consultant, uh, Representative B. Gwynn, a Democrat from Atlanta, and Augusta Mayor uh, Hardy Davis. Mayor Davis, when we have a mayor on the show, before I go back to talking a little bit more of the legislature, we'd like to check in on how things are going in your cities. The last time you were on the show, you took pride in pointing out that Augusta and surrounding Richmond County had the highest rate of vaccination inoculations in the state. Are you continuing to uh, do well in that regard? And is there at least some equitable distribution of the vaccine going on in Augusta, Mayor? Yeah, thanks for that question, Bill. Uh, We continue to uh, have the highest per capita per 100,000 rate of vaccinations in the state of Georgia. Uh, we've got a very robust operation with our entire healthcare continuum. Obviously, uh, Augusta University is the lead agent uh, in making sure that we get those vaccines working in collaboration with the state of Georgia. Uh, I'm generally pleased. I think there's a whole lot more work we've got to do with the equitable distribution of vaccinations. You know, largely the challenges around doing that are lack of transportation, uh, lack of being able to stand up sites. Uh, in those underserved communities. Uh, we're very fortunate that most recently we've stood up two mobile units, uh, one with uh, the Department of Public Health. Uh, in fact, I think two, and then I believe AU, Augusta University, is also working to provide a mobile unit in the community that's going to help us, you know, bend that arc and make sure that we're getting to the people who desperately need it the most. Um, okay. I think, uh, you know, one quick note about that. I was uh, interested in the fact that, that in DeKalb County, uh, and by the way, CEO Michael Thurman will be with us on the show tomorrow, and we'll talk about this a little. Uh, in terms of that notion of getting the vaccine to people who have barriers of, of one sort or another, uh, when they first started vaccinating in DeKalb, one of their two locations was a brand smart parking lot right on 285. And it did require people to have cars to get there. And I thought it was a progressive move, uh, Tamar, on DeKalb's part, to move that location to a DeKalb MARTA station, which does make it easier for uh, people without cars to get vaccinated. It's such a simple step and yet makes so much sense when you really think through distribution, Tamar. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, I guess you seem to forget, or, or so many people do forget, uh, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to have cars, you assume kind of everyone does, but but you realize that's, that's definitely not the case. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's move on and talk more legislative uh, matters. Um, B, uh, it was not expected to face trouble, and in fact, it didn't. It passed out of the House unanimously. But the effort to overhaul the citizen's arrest statute, the Civil War statute, which was first put in place uh, um, most certainly uh, to help uh, white slave owners, and then later in the Jim Crow days to help whites who were uh, 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 trying to uh, uh, keep 
uh, black people, you know, repressed in their communities. It helped them make these citizens arrests. It passed unanimously. And the reason it's worth talking about, of course, is it was in many ways a response to the awful shooting of Ahmaud Arbery, which is now, which took place now more than a year ago. Yes. Yes, and we sometimes have these rare moments in the Georgia legislature where we really convene around an issue that's important um, to all of us. And I remember last year while we were in legislative session, and it was um, shortly after Ahmaud Arbery shooting, um, Chairman Chuck Frustration, Marissa Dodson from the Southern Center for Human Rights, and James Woodall from Georgia NAACP, we sat in a room and met almost on a weekly basis and thought, how are we going to be able to repeal citizens' arrest? And had hearings over the summer. And when those hearings happened over the summer, there were a lot of Republicans who were uncomfortable about the idea of repealing citizens' arrest. But when the advocates, the lawmakers um, did the work, there was, you know, the education piece on what citizens' arrest is and what it looks like to take it off the books. And now here we are having the governor's floor leader carry the bill. Um, he did a tremendous job in committee ahead of us getting this on the floor. And, you know, we did talk about whether or not it would be a un unanimous passage. And I think we were all very excited to see that it was. And now we've got the hurdle of getting it through on the Senate side. I don't, I'm not sure if, um, you know, Heath has any insight on what the senators are thinking, but it was a huge win for us here in Georgia. It's a big step in the right direction. But I will say, you know, it is, you know, it's a complicated place, the legislature. So here on one hand, we are making a huge change to repeal citizens' arrest. But the number of bills I saw yesterday on the floor to increase penalties, to make it, um, to create new crimes were the opposite of what we saw under Governor Deal's leadership, where we were really thinking through how do we move people out of the system of mass incarceration and all of these things are intertwined. Um, so I did celebrate the, the repeal of citizens arrest and 20 day, 28 days in and that's the bill that I've been most excited to vote for. Heath? Well, Bill, I just have to give a shout out to my former intern who I hired out of Georgia Tech, uh, Representative Burt Reeves, who was also my law partner for a number <laughs> of years and to the governor for, for leadership on this. I don't think that you would have gotten this unanimous uh, vote out of it, but for the leadership of the governor, uh, Burt Reeves, and Burt and the governor reaching across uh, party aisles uh, to work with the Democratic leadership on this. I think this is a great example of how Republicans and Democrats can work together uh, to really move the state forward in some really positive ways. And I hope that we can find more examples of this in the future. It also shows you know, that the, the people of Georgia, right, will come together when they're given the opportunity and leadership. And it took some courage on both sides of the aisle to do this. So I don't want to pass it up, but, you know, Burt showed tremendous uh, legislative leadership in getting this done. And it was not anticipated that it would be unanimous, uh, even as uh, as early as yesterday. So uh, I think uh, great work on their their behalf. And I think this is important. You know, I've been involved in the Ahmad Arbery case uh, through Attorney General Chris Carr and through my uh, former client, GBI Director Vic Reynolds, and watching what's happening there. I think Georgia is, again, showing the way to process through a terrible tragedy like that. And fixing this legislation is just one more piece of kind of moving Georgia in the right direction on issues like this. You know, Mayor Davis, I think many people, I certainly count myself as one of them, were very surprised to learn the origins 
of Georgia's citizen's arrest law, that it was a Civil War-era law uh, that gave whites the power to go after their black slaves um, and, um, and, and ar- essentially arrest them without law enforcement being involved. I, I, it, it, it was kind of astonishing to realize that there are still things on the books here that harken back to some of the darkest days in this state. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, I want to echo that this is really a moment to pause and to celebrate the good work of the legislature. Uh, point of personal privilege again, uh, go Jackets, Burt Reeves. Uh, that's good stuff. <laughs> I'm excited about that. I wouldn't let that one slide. You know, we don't get off the new opportunity to do that. But, no, I mean, in all honesty, uh, I've had the fortune of, uh, you know, meeting Ahmad Aubrey's mom um, from Waynesboro over here, just down the road from us in Augusta. Uh, this is a good day in the state of Georgia. Uh, to your point, Bill, we've got a host of, you know, old laws that are on the books that take us back to that era. Uh, that's why you've got to elect people of uh, candidates of your choice, folks who care about the state of Georgia, who care about one another, who roll up their sleeves and get in the room as Representative Wynn just said it, uh, and lay down their partisan weapons of war and, and, and the lines of color and say, what matters to us? And uh, let's get it done. Uh, very similar to the hate crimes legislation from last year which was another step in the right direction. And so we continue to make these strides. Georgia is going to continue to be uh, the place that it is uh, in the state of opportunity for everybody. You know, there was one detail in my colleague Maya Prabhu's story after after this bill passed the House yesterday that, that really struck me. First of all, that all 50 states have some version of this uh, law on the books. But if Georgia ultimately does repeal it, uh, Georgia would be the first state to, to wipe it off the books or, or kind of roll it back. So that was something that, that really struck me and how out of this tragedy, um, maybe maybe we aren't able to make a big change like that. But at the same time, I'll be curious to see if it, it does have the momentum in the Senate, if, if you know they do end up passing it, if it can be unanimous, if something does get caught up. You know, I covered the paid family leave bill last year, an entirely different issue, but passed out of the House, I think, with one dissenting vote, but died in the Senate in the last minute. So this fight isn't over, and I'll be curious to see how the debate shapes up in the Senate. All right, uh, let's do this. Let's take our final break of the show. And uh, Mayor Davis, I know you have an appointment and that you're going to have to leave us. Um, So uh, is this a good time to thank you for uh, being with us and to uh, let you go off and take care of the business you have to deal with? Yeah, Bill, it is. Uh, Again, thanks so much for inviting. Always great to be in your company. Uh, Representative Wynn, uh, keep the fight and uh, appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, tomorrow, always good to be here, and uh, it's my pleasure to meet you, Heath. Look forward to having some good uh, Dr. Pepper conversation with you. <laughs> Mayor Hardy Davis of Augusta, thank you so much for being with us for the show today. Let's take our final break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Heath Garrett, Tamara Hallerman, uh, Representative B. Gwynn, join us uh, today on Political Rewind. Um, B, let me just uh, mention a bill that uh, I, I, I saw in the jolt just a short time ago uh, had uh, failed, and I think it's at least worth a mention. Um, Republican legislator Casey Carpenter of Dalton 
has been working very hard to pass a measure that would allow DACA young people um, to pay in-state tuition at Georgia colleges and universities. It's HB uh, 120. And last year, he had bipartisan support for this measure, uh, thought that this time it would finally get through. It's been a measure of great controversy for a while now, and yet it failed again uh, to get through. And apparently, B, it failed in part because of misinformation that was spread about what this bill could lead to, yes? Bill, I'm so glad you mentioned that uh, that legislation, House Bill 120. Um, I signed on to it this year and have been co- in conversation with Representative Carpenter this whole session about, you know, and being able to advance it. And we were very excited that it did make it out of committee and we did have Republicans who supported it, but they have been getting hit by their own party. And I do want to thank Representative Carpenter for his leadership on this. This is an issue that he knows very well because um, he's got a lot of undocumented uh, families that live in his community, and he knows they are his neighbors, they are his workers, they play with his children, he coaches them through his sports team. Um, it's an issue that I know well as because of my work in public schools. And so here we are, we have... Um, you know, young people in Georgia who lived here almost their entire lives, who identify as Georgians and Americans, who do not have access to college, um, affordable college. They are paying out-of-state tuition, uh, which is three times as high. So even when you're looking at going to, you know, Georgia perimeter, that's, you know, five to $6,000 a semester for somebody who's undocumented, and they have no access to financial aid, no state or federal financial aid. So I've seen a lot of my students in the past not be able to go to college because they simply couldn't afford it. Not because they weren't smart enough, not because they didn't want to contribute, um, but because they could not pay for it. And it's a workforce issue. It's an equity issue. Um, And, you know, we have used immigration as a wedge issue and as a fear tactic. And so um, part of the conversation is with a new president coming in, um, President Biden, Um, There was some rhetoric from the far right suggesting that we currently have a new border problem that I guess apparently occurred in the last 70 days or so. Um, And it it was very sad to see because Americans across our country support DACA recipients being able to have access to college. It's a workforce issue and an equity issue. Um, Representative Carpenter did a tremendous job, and there were other Republicans who stepped up and supported him, and they just got hammered. They got hammered by their local Republican parties. Um, They got hammered by people who are supposed to be on the same side as them. And, um, you know, I talked to him last night. He was very disappointed that it didn't make it on the floor. I was disappointed as well. And I think, you know, that disappointment um, cuts a little deeper when you know that the reason the bill didn't make it on the floor was not because it was bad policy, but again, because it was politics. Um, Heath, and, and one of the other aspects of this that I would think you would be uh, uh, particularly interested in looking at is here's an opportunity. Here's a Republican mm-hmm. sponsor of, of the measure um, looking to exp- potentially find an issue, not only that will help these DACA student kids, but or young people, I apologize, some of them are adults, um, it, it would also allow the Republican Party to expand its tent and instead uh, nativist misinformation uh, stopped this thing apparently 
from moving forward. The, the uh, uh, attacks were that this would encourage more undocumented uh, uh, people to move to Georgia, when in fact it, that isn't the case at all. You, you would have had to establish residency something like almost 20 years ago to be eligible for this. Um, so it doesn't help the party if it wants to reach out. Look, uh, Representative Carpenter deserves a lot of credit for having the courage to bring this uh, forward. I think he garnered a fair amount of support on both sides of the aisle. I'm disappointed uh, that it didn't move over. I do think there was some misinformation out there about this. I think that, you know, passions are still inflamed because of the last election. And again, uh, legislation sometimes takes a while to help inform and do the debate. I, I don't think he'll give up on this. I do think, Bill, you're correct. Uh, this is another example where Republicans, with good policy, it would it would end up making good politics. I've never counseled anybody to just go do with the politics and then worry about the policy later. Good policy makes good politics, and you're right. This is an opportunity for Republicans to close a gap within the electorate that's going to be important uh, in the state of Georgia and nationally going forward. But I've got the scars of having fought with Senator Chambliss and Senator Isaacson for immigration reform in 2006 and 2007. And I've watched both parties, when they have slim majorities in the Senate, use it as a wedge issue. And it's a pox on both of our houses for not having solved this. And this would have been one small step forward, in my opinion. Oh, that's, you know, Tamar, he makes such a great point. This is Republicans in Washington have failed on both sides of the aisle to do anything about immigration reform. And this is just kind of a very small example of the partisan politics that come into play in efforts to do something about passing a meaningful reform. I sound like a broken record. I said the same thing when we were talking about the elections bill, but this is Donald Trump's party. You know, he was able to use immigration as a way to fire up his base, really hardline language on it. And as much as a lot of Republicans, especially after Mitt Romney's loss in 2012, they, they were talking about expanding the tent, doing all sorts of immigration reform. Trump was able to use the issue so well as a cudgel. Um, you look at Republican legislators, many of them, you know, they, they feel like they can't go against that or, or they have to kind of keep moving with that language. Language. And it, it worked very well with the Republican base. And if you live in rural Georgia, um, you know, I think it's hard to kind of go against that. Um, at the same time, you look at polling on the issue, and especially when it comes to these uh, dreamers and these DACA kids, the overwhelming majority of the American public, public supports, um, you know, being able to give them benefits like this. But Washington hasn't even been able to come up with a solution like this. So I'm, I'm not that surprised, I guess, that, that Georgia hasn't been able to, to do it on the state level, uh, <laughs> being, cynic, being cynical here. But uh, yeah, after watching all of these immigration compromises crash and burn for so many years on the Hill, um, I'm, I'm kind of not surprised to see it. You know, Tamara, I have to say that that's one of the things I've learned about you watching you, listening to you on the show over the months, is that your years covering uh, uh, Washington, particularly covering the Hill, has made you rather skeptical <laughs> about many of the efforts to do anything meaningful it's up made there. me a 31 year old cynic about everything i see but uh, once you see it even on something like daca how could you you know it's yeah. you know you look at polling 90 percent of the population wants to give dreamers a path to some sort of legal status and they can't even get there on that so yeah right. sorry be, be on the other that's okay be on the other hand uh, i want to talk just briefly uh, since we're getting short on time, about uh, the Senate did not pass 
a bill that had attracted uh, some attention because, again, it's one of those culture issues that uh, people uh, uh, quite often like to use with their constituents. The Senate measure that would ban transgender girls from competing in girls' high school sports did not get through the Senate. Now, I don't. Is there a House version of that bill, and this is just a Senate version, or is this thing not going anywhere? I don't think it's going anywhere, Bill. There are actually three House versions of it, and one of them oh, did okay. receive a committee hearing, but never came up for a vote on the House side. Um, and, and it was a very hard committee hearing because I think there's just a lot of um, unfounded stereotypes and just fear and just a lack of understanding um, around the issue. And we had mothers come in and talk about their transgender girls and what a bill like that would do for, you know, their self-esteem, um, their ability to feel accepted and their ability to, um, you know, have a productive, meaningful um, life at school. And so um, that bill did come up. It did not pass. I'm a little surprised at some of the, the people who carried the bill and, and signed on to it. Um, but again, I do think it is an issue that um, the Republican base does respond to, um, but an issue that doesn't have a whole lot of merit. Um, we did ask one of the bill sponsors, are there any cases in Georgia where a transgender girl, a transgender woman, you know, played on a sports team and ended up inadvertently harming another girl on the team? And the answer was no, no, it just is not happening. And it's, you know, it's just such a small segment of, you know, girls who just simply want to be part of their school team and play with their classmates and live their lives in a way that normal kids can live. And so um, I don't think that we will see any movement on it. Okay. Uh, Heath, I thought one of the interesting comments we had on the show a couple of weeks ago was from a panelist who said what, what the supporters of a bill like this are really uh, worried about is uh, transgender uh, women who succeed in their sports, who are champions. In their, if you're a loser, nobody really cares. But if you end up winning, uh, then it becomes a problem, Heath. <laughs> yeah. Listen, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I think all these suburban mothers are going to get really interested in this when and if they're real cases, right? Like in Connecticut and other places where where folks in high school that are, that are anatomically uh, the male gender are winning track meets and things like that. But at this point in time, I think it's fine to let it uh, simmer and we'll see if our Democrats go too far on an issue like this. Heath Garrett. Thank you so much. We get the last word in today's show. I appreciate your being uh, with us, Heath. Uh, be when. Thank you. Uh, after a long night at the Capitol, and uh, we'll watch you get back to work as the legislature moves toward a conclusion. I think on March 30th, right? And Tamar Hallerman, as always on Tuesdays. I'm glad that you joined me to be part of this show. That's all the time we have. Today, my thanks to Amelia Brock, Sam Burmis-Dawes, and Jesse Neiswanger for their always important contributions to making this show work. I'll see you again tomorrow. Until then, please take care, stay healthy, wear your masks, and uh, start thinking about how to get vaccinated if you haven't gotten your vaccine yet. Take care, everybody.